Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday after Thanksgiving to everyone. Um, I guess some of you don't know me. I'm Dennis. I'm one of the uh, pastoral staff over at Valley Church, and I haven't been here for a little while because they've been keeping me more than busy there. Uh, thank the Lord for giving me an opportunity to be here this morning. I'm thankful for a lot of things, but one of the things I'm also thankful for is the opportunity to travel. And some of you know I just came back from Taiwan. Actually, I was there a week ago visiting my uh, sister-in-law who's battling cancer. I'll tell you a little more about that later on. But I'm also thankful for many opportunities I've had to travel. Now, one of the things I like to do when I travel is I like to get away from people. I mean, how many of you, when you take a vacation, like to be where people are at? Okay, a few of you. Well, this past summer, we had a, a, a vacation coming up, and we kind of voted on where we wanted to go. So, like, just like I am, I always like to be out in nature. And so one of the places where I wanted to go is up in the mountains, maybe to Banff or the Canadian Alps and all that. But I got voted down. We ended up in New York. Not just New York, but Manhattan. Can you imagine that? That's a, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with that. Anyway, uh, so much for democracy. Let me see. Do I point back here? Okay. Anyway, one of the places where I like to go is where water is. And I love to, to see waterfalls. I mean, how many of you like to see waterfalls? You know, strange thing, but maybe you're like me. I can sit by a stream and just sit. Now, my wife thinks that's the dumbest thing. So one year we went up to Banff. It's up in Canada, Canadian Alps. And every time I saw this sign, it said, waterfall. I pulled over and I hiked to the waterfall. So after about the third time, my wife said, man, you've seen one, you've seen them all. And, you know, I don't know what's wrong with her. So I went, and so I ended up hiking to several waterfalls by myself. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of you know where this is? Anybody know where this waterfall is? Any of you ever been to Lake Tahoe? Do you know this is at Lake Tahoe? Right above Emerald Bay? I think it's called Eagle Falls or something like that, right below Fallen Leaf Lake. Okay, well, this is where that is. And uh, I like to go there, and I got to sit there, even though my wife egged me on. But I love this place. And in Scripture, oftentimes they use different analogies and metaphors to describe the Christian life. And one of the metaphors it uses is this idea of a stream, a stream that's flowing. In fact, look at today's passage. Let me see. Here it is. I'll get this down. Jesus says this. In fact, this is the memory verse if you want to start memorizing a verse. John seven thirty-seven to 38. On the last day and great day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Overflowing. What a beautiful picture of the Christian life. And we sang songs about that. Come to him. How can we stop from singing? These are analogies, descriptions, metaphors of what the Christian life is all about. It's something that is flowing, that's dynamic, that's natural. And so that's nothing new to you, the Christian life. It's like a stream. Not just a stream, but notice what it says at the end. Streams, plural. It seems like it's saying it's something that comes naturally from within. 
that flows outward. What a beautiful picture of the Christian life. If I ask many of you, maybe some of you here, does this describe your Christian life? Let us describe my Christian life. Because this is what Jesus says. If you come to me and drink, which describes somebody who's a Christian, who comes to Jesus and drinks, this is what is going to happen. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians are more like little drips. We're kind of leaking living water instead of flowing living water. And so my question is, why is that? What is wrong with us Christians if Jesus says streams of living water will come from inside outward? What's up with that? What's the matter? Why are we more like clogged drains than streams of living water? And so my question is, is, um, is that what's the matter? And I believe, I guess to simplify it, it's a matter of perspective. Perspective of who Jesus is. And sometimes we have a wrong perspective, sometimes an incomplete perspective of who Jesus is. And so this passage in John chapter 7, and we've been going through the whole book of John, right? Is that, is that right? So I'll make sure. Okay, we're on the John chapter 7. We're looking at verse 37 to 52. And in this crowd, we're going to see people that have different perspectives. Maybe it describes you. Maybe it doesn't. But we're going to look at this. In fact, turn your Bibles to John chapter 7, verse 1. Now, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews were there waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish feast of the Passover was near... Some went up to the feast, and some waited a little while to go up to the feast. So we have this Feast of Tabernacle, which is a big celebration. It's a holiday, kind of like Thanksgiving. People are going home to one area to celebrate. Now, at this Feast of Tabernacle, a lot of people went into Jerusalem. Some had different perspectives of Jesus. And we're going to look at that a little closer. Now, this feast generally... You can find a little more details about this in passages in the Old Testament. And we're not going to look all these up. I just put them up there for you to uh, see as references. So the occasion of what we're going to see in John chapter 7 is feast, a holiday, a celebration, but also a memorial. People are in Jerusalem coming there to celebrate this um, occasion. And this celebration was about uh, how God provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness. Feast of Tabernacles, is an, there's another name for it called the Feast of Booths. Because during this time, everybody who lived 20 miles away from Jerusalem were to go to the city, and then they were to live in tents or booths during this time to commemorate their wandering in the wilderness. And some of you have seen, what, Prince of Egypt, right? The Walt Disney movie? That kind of... After that, after they leave Egypt, they wander in the wilderness. And during the celebration, they celebrate how God provided for them in the wilderness. One of the things that they said during this feast, they read different psalms. Okay, They said, oh, give thanks to the Lord. And while they're shouting around, they went up to the temple. Save now, oh, I pray, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, I pray, send your prosperity just like you did to us in the wilderness. 
Now do this with this harvest. Feast of Tabernacles. Now, during this feast, different people had different reactions to who Jesus was. So keep your finger in John chapter 7, and we're going to look at different people. We're going to look first about some people that I would, I guess, label as clogged. Clogged because they didn't seem to have living water flowing out of them. Now, as you look at the crowd, you get this mixed response from the people in the crowd. And it's kind of like today. If you ask people on the streets who Jesus is, you'll get many different types of responses. Let me kind of highlight a few responses that are found here among the crowds. Just kind of review from last week. First of all, look at the mixed responses in the crowd. Here are some of the responses. Verse 12. Some people thought Jesus was a good man. Now you get that today, don't you? I mean, a lot of people say, yeah, he's a great teacher. Some people say he's a deceiver. In this crowd of people, verse 20, some people even said, hey, that Jesus, I think he's demon-possessed. Isn't that amazing? Here, the Son of God, coming before them, the one who had performed miracles, is said to be demon-possessed. Very interesting. Verse 25, some people are confused about Jesus. They aren't really sure who he was. And so in this mixed crowd of people, you have different responses. Not much different from the people of today. See, some people are kind of like fence-sitters. They're not sure who Jesus is. They don't reject him. But neither do they embrace him. Maybe there are people like that today here. It's not that you reject Jesus, but you're still a little skeptical about totally embracing him. The crowds there were like that. Some people thought he was a prophet, verse 40. Some people thought, hey, maybe he is the Christ. Look at verse 30. See, in the midst of a skeptical crowd, it's interesting that they have this verse 30 in it, and you looked at it last week. So even though some people are trying to seize Jesus, some people are opposed to him, notice what it says in 730. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid hands on him because his time had not yet come. Verse 31. Still, many in the crowd still put their faith in Jesus. So even in the midst of skepticism, even today in the midst of skepticism, there are people who are still putting their faith in Jesus. New people, new believers, new converts, new followers of Jesus Christ. In this crowd, some people did say the right thing. This is the Christ. Verse 41 to 44. But there are also people who says, this can't be the Christ. Can you? Verse 41. Others said he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Mixed reaction to who Jesus is. You see, to me, the most important question that anybody needs to answer, ultimately, in their life, who's Jesus? Maybe more importantly, who's Jesus to you? 
good man, deceiver, a prophet, a good teacher, demon-possessed? Who is this Jesus? I'll tell you a little more at the end why this question is really important, and it brought it home to me when I was in Taiwan. Mixed crowd. You also get another group of people that were clogged. They were actually stopped up. Look over to verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why did you not bring him in? You see, the temple guards were sent to arrest Jesus, but they didn't arrest him because of this. Verse 46, the temple guards responded, no one ever spoke the way this man does. They were amazed at Jesus' teaching. Then the religious people of the day, the traditionalists, the conservative people, this is their response to Jesus. You mean that he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. <laughs> Interesting. The religious leaders, conservative people, the people who are supposed to understand what the Old Testament said were the very ones who rejected Jesus. Then they retorted, has anybody believed in him? And they said no, but the answer really was yes, because some guy named Nicodemus had become a follower, and actually other Pharisees and religious rulers had begun following Jesus. No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Now they're saying, hey, listen, we, the intellectual people, the religious people, we know what's right. But the crowds, they're fickle. They've been deceived. They've been led astray. That was their response. How about one guy stood up, Nicodemus, one of their own, who had gone to Jesus earlier, chapter 3, and it was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he was doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And so their response, rejection of Jesus. Two groups of people, mixed group, that had different perspectives of Jesus, not really rejecting him, but not really embracing him. And then the religious right, who outright rejected Jesus. Any of you kind of relate to any of those two types of people? Religious leaders, those who should have received Jesus, didn't. And interesting, it says this about them. They made a judgment on Jesus without first investigating what he had to say. Nicodemus even called them on the carpet, verse 51. Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing what he has to say? And see, people are like that today. They reject Jesus, but they haven't really investigated what he has to say, what he's all about, and who he is. People like that. Clogged pipes. Because if they really looked at the life of Jesus, they'll find something different. In fact, look back at verse 40, 41. There was a question about Jesus' childhood. You see, it said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. But they understood that Jesus was from Galilee. It's kind of like me. See, I was born in Sacramento. Anybody born in Sacramento? Ron, hey, good. But I was raised in San Jose. 
This thing is moving on its own. Okay. I was raised in San Jose. And so in some ways I can say I'm from San Jose. My childhood was here. But if you looked at my birthplace, it was Sacramento. And so the same way it is with Jesus. Not that Jesus is from Sacramento, by the way. Um, you know, what did it say? It says that Jesus was from Bethlehem. And we sing Christmas songs about that. Now, his early childhood, he spent in another city because he was trying to get away from authorities. So, birthplace. And back in the Old Testament, it said this about the Messiah. That he's going to be born in the birthplace of David. He's going to be from his lineage. And so if you look back at Jesus' lineage or the genealogies of Matthew or the Gospel of uh, Luke, you'll find that his lineage includes a Davidic descendant. Even the guards, when they heard what Jesus had to say, understanding that he was unlearned, they realized that his words had power in them. His speech testified of who he was. His childhood really does. The fact that he was a descendant of David, the fact that he was born in Bethlehem, these all point, not conclusively, but give more credence to his claim to be the Messiah. Something else back in chapter 7, also the miracles Jesus performed were not ordinary, but super ordinary, miraculously. These were the point to him as who he claimed to be, Jesus. Why are some people clogged? Because they refuse or reject who Jesus is, or they refuse or neglect to look into who Jesus is a little further. Because if they really understood his claims, what he had to say, his historical figure, and all those type of things, they'll realize, hey, this guy is the Son of God. Clogged. We live in certain times. But see, nothing is uncertain to Jesus. One thing about the book of John is it has this one phrase over and over again. It says in verse 44, no one laid hands on him. No one lays hands on him to seize him. Now, when the temple guards went over to arrest Jesus, he didn't have any bodyguards. If you think the disciples were bodyguards... You know, they're fishermen, and maybe they're kind of, you know, kind of like Jim, you know, firemen, big and bulky. But, you know, um, they weren't bodyguards by any stretch of imagination. They could have laid hands on him, but God was protecting him. But it also says this in verse 30. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hands on him because of this saying. His time had not yet come. And interesting, throughout the book of John, the same phrase is repeated over and over and over again. His time had not yet come. You see, when things looked out of control, when the forces of the Roman legion were crashing down on Jesus, he was still in control. And so when the economy tanks, from propositions passed or don't pass, when somebody gets elected as president that you voted for or you didn't vote for, hey, you don't have to worry. God is still in control. Jesus was in control back then. It's the same today. So don't think just because things are looking bad outwardly, God is in control. He was back then. He is today. No one laid hands on Jesus because 
His time had not yet come. Now it goes on to say in Scripture, in the book of John, that his time does come. And Jesus said the same thing over and over and over again. Look at John 12, 23, 13, 1, 16, 32, 17, 1. My hour, my time has come for me to go to the Father. He's in control. And we can bank on that. Clogged? Trust in Jesus. Let's go back to the saying. Our memory verse, John chapter 7, verse 37 to 38. Interesting that in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, they celebrated for seven days. Then on the last day, there was a great celebration. And so all these people are running around. They're holding these um, branches that are made out of four different trees, and they're waving them. And on the last day, they waved them even more powerfully and shouted more joyfully. During this last days, just like every day before, the priest would go to the pool of Salaam, grab some water, bring it back to the temple, and pour it over the altar. And then people would shout and all that, and there'd be a, a climax to all this shouting. And in the midst of this, here's this one guy says, wait a second, and everybody stops. So amidst all this shouting, it's kind of like the president giving an address. And all of a sudden you get this, stay tuned for an important message. That's kind of like what Jesus did here on the last day, the great day of the feast. Look at verse 37. So in the midst of the Super Bowl, there's this commercial, a commercial break, and here's the announcement. If anyone is thirsty, remember pouring of the water over the altar, let him come to me and drink. What do you get on the Feast of Tabernacles, a celebration of their wilderness, wilderness wanderings. And in the wilderness, God provided water for them. Here Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. So I hope you get this picture. That when Jesus, in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, stands up and shouts, they understood it right away. And maybe we don't grasp the significance of it, because we don't live in the Jewish culture. But hopefully I've, I've brought up the speed a little, and brought you up the speed to understand the significance of this. Because as Jesus is saying this, just like God provided water in the wilderness, hey, I'm providing spiritual water for your souls. And if you drink of this, Jesus promised this, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So come to Jesus, he says. Now what does Jesus refer to when he's saying this? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 39. Verse 39. By this, and this is kind of like a commentary, an explanation of what Jesus said. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to this time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. But when Jesus has died on the cross, raised up and goes to the Father, it says that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. I don't know if we've taught a lot about the Holy Spirit, or if Dave has taught a lot about the Holy Spirit recently. But this is what Jesus' statement refers to. When he talks about thirsting, 
and your soul's thirst being quenched. When he talks about streams of living water flowing from within you, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. Turn eight pages forward if you have the exact same Bible as I do. If you don't, turn to John chapter 16. Jesus is taught to his disciples, and you're going to get to this later on in the year, but I thought I'd fast forward and give you a little preview. Jesus is taught to his disciples during the Last Supper, and he's saying this, Now I'm going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask, where are you going? Because Jesus had told them, hey, I'm going away. Because I've said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, this is Jesus' promise. I will send him to you, referring to the Holy Spirit. You see, when Jesus was with the disciples, let me ask you this question. How many places was Jesus at when he was with his disciples? Okay, it was one place, right? Either he was here, here, or here. Now the problem is, what if they're all scattered? How can he be with more than one person at one time? Jesus says, if I go away, I will send the counselor to you. But he's not going to come until after I go. Now turn back to chapter 14. Jesus says this in 14, 15 on. If you love me, you will keep my commandment. And I will ask the Father, and he will send another counselor, or as the New American Standard Version says, a helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But look at this. But you know him, for he lives with you. And look at this one part. He'll be in you. Now, when Jesus was with his disciples, they could say the first part. Jesus was with us. But they really couldn't say that Jesus was in them. But when the Holy Spirit comes, not only will the Holy Spirit come, and not only will he be with us, notice this. It says he's going to be in us. And so as a Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus... You have the Holy Spirit in you. It's not something that you beg for. It's not something that you have to try to work for. It's not something that you try to force to happen. It's a promise of God that when you put your faith in Jesus, he's going to send the Spirit into you, and the Spirit will be in you and with you. This is an incredible promise because if you look further down in Scripture, there's a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. In fact, you cannot live out the Christian life, without the Spirit's power. If you look over in Galatians, it says this, So I say, live by the Spirit, live by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you will not gratify or fulfill the desires of the sinful nature. There's a spiritual battle going on within you. The Spirit and the flesh are opposed to one another. But it says, if you live by the Spirit, if you're dependent on His power in you, you're going to have victory. Now, the opposite is also true. 
You try to live out your own life, even the Christian life, depending on yourself. You're going to fail. You're going to suffer. You're going to be clogged pipes. And that could be streams of living water. He's given us the power, the Holy Spirit. Ours is to live by the Spirit or live in step with the Spirit. And some of you know this passage, Galatians 5, 22 to 23. It talks about the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Notice it says the fruit of the Spirit. The product of us being filled and walking with the Spirit is these character traits in our life. And so in a way, it's not for you and I to try to produce these. Back in John chapter 15, Jesus says, Abide in me. Abide in the vine. Remain in me. Keep in step with me. Live by the Spirit. These things will be the product or the fruit of our walking with the Lord. And so the, the Christian life, the Christian life is none other than the Spirit producing His fruit in us and through us. And so if you're trying to live the Christian life on your own power, you're going to be frustrated. Have you ever tried to be patient? I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be patient. You know, it's not something that you can do on your own. But depending on the Lord, I found this really true for me. The more I depend on the Lord to produce these type of traits, the more they become evident. So I can't take credit for being more spiritual. Because it's a Spirit's power in me that produces fruit. And I hope that that really brings you a lot of freedom. Brings me a lot of freedom. Because now I realize that my spiritual life isn't dependent on me. It's dependent on God and me trusting in Him. It's kind of like the songs that we sing. Songs that we sang today. Kind of coming to Him, broken, and He'll make us beautiful. Bringing our brokenness, that's what Jesus wants. Also goes on to say, it's a command. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. This is the Lord's will. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, that's a message in itself, and we'll kind of cover that another time. Be filled with the Spirit. Let yourself be controlled and empowered by the Spirit. If there's a little throne in our life that controls our life, let Jesus and let the Holy Spirit be that which sits there. It, it's our surrendering to Him daily. You know, we sing these songs, and I love these songs, but I hope that when you sing these songs, it means something beyond the walls of this church. That every day, every moment of our lives, we can have that attitude of surrender to Him. And that we can have open palms before Him and live that life like that. That's what the Spirit-filled life is all about. Then, we'll be described as streams of living water flowing from within us. In Scripture, you often have commands. Commands tell us this is what God wants us to do. There's a command to keep. In Scripture, there are promises. Promises to claim. If Jesus says, if we ask anything according to his name, he'll hear us. And if we know he hears us and what we say, we'll also know that we have the request 
that we have asked of him. That's a promise that we claim. In scriptures, there's also facts. Facts for us to believe in. When Jesus says these words, we believe it. I am the bread of life. That's a fact. I am the giver of living water. That's a fact. I am the light of the world. That's a fact. In fact, this has both a fact and a promise. Words like, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never thirst. Fact. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Promise. He who comes to me will never go hungry, never thirst. Jesus said this. They're similar to what we find in chapter 7. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling out to eternal life. A promise, again, to claim. And so when we come to today's memory verse, the fact to claim that Jesus said this, the promise that if we come to him and drink of him from our innermost being, just as scripture said, will flow rivers of living water. Fact to believe, a promise to claim. Why are some of us not overflowing? I wonder if it's not because maybe we're ignorant of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it was like me when I first became a Christian. I thought, okay, I put my faith in Jesus. Okay, I'm not going to hell. That's good enough for me. And I thought the rest of my Christian life was about doing good, about going to church and doing the church things. And so I didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. But what a relief it was to me in college when I began to understand what it meant to be filled with the Spirit. It was, it was, it was like a relief. I could, keep, I could stop trying to be a Christian and just be a follower of Jesus Christ. What a relief. What a relief. What freedom there is in trusting in Christ. It's a fact. Maybe you're clogged today because you really haven't trusted in Christ or you're ignorant that he gives us the Holy Spirit. Maybe we're also clogged because of sin. Because Jesus says he'll quench our soul's thirst. But maybe we're trying to still quench our soul's thirst by something else. I don't know what your something else is, but Jesus said this. I'll quench your soul's thirst. And from within you will flow streams of living water. Back to believe. Promise to claim. I hope you uh, were encouraged to look at your own life, to consider what you believe about Jesus. That's the most important thing that you have to answer. I was with um, my sister-in-law for the first two and a half weeks of November. And we the reason why we went there is my wife got a call from her sister and says, hey, the doctors want you to... Go over to Taiwan to visit your sister. And when a doctor tells you that, when the doctor tells you that your next of kin is needed, then you kind of get on the plane and just go. And so we had like three days to get there. And we had found that her cancer that she had been battling the last 10 years started out as breast cancer, 
got into the lungs a little. She had been victorious for a long time. But how she ended up back in the hospital was because the cancer spread to her brain. And so it didn't look good. And quite frankly, when I went there, I thought she would never get out of the hospital. So we went there, and uh, my wife had asked me, help my sister to know where she'll spend eternity. Help her to have that peace. And so I got to talk to her. I got to share John 14 about rooms in heaven. I got to talk about 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, how it says, you know, our outer bodies are wasting away, but our inner man is being restored. And we don't want to be naked and be in this world. We want to be with the Lord, where we'll have eternal bodies forever. And so as I talked to her, I realized she had that assurance already. In fact, I was really pretty amazed. She didn't complain. She didn't blame God. She's actually very confident where she'll spend all of her life. And the reason why she was confident was because she knew that Jesus was in her heart. And because when Jesus says, I'll give you eternal life, she believed that with all her heart. It's kind of like what, um, what somebody was praying when we were praying for my sister-in-law. Remember in John, uh, Daniel chapter 3, three guys were thrown into the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what their response was very similar to what my sister-in-law's response was. If I live, I'll worship the Lord. If I die, I'll also worship the Lord forever. So what's the difference? And my sister-in-law had that same assurance. And it made me think, man, do I have that same assurance? Because I believed in Jesus? Do I? Someone once said, you're not ready to live if you're not ready to die. Who is Jesus? If you know Jesus as Lord, you know where you're going to spend eternity. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for for giving us such a precious gift, your son, Jesus. Also for giving us of your Holy Spirit. Father, some of us, frankly, all of us, Father, are broken. But thank you that when we come to you and give you our lives, our souls, us, you make it beautiful. So, Father, how can we stop singing your praise? And just like Olivia this morning was singing with all our hearts, Oh, Lord, help us to sing like that, not just today, but the rest of this week and all the days of our life. And, Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't have that assurance of where they'll spend eternity, help them to find you. Help them to to talk to somebody else that they can really understand who you are and put their faith in you. Father, again, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for being with us this morning and speaking to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.